or not. Um, my name is Mike. We want to welcome you. We are glad that you are here. Brothers and sisters, we at this community want to take a stand against the great evil that is infecting our world. We, in the name of Jesus, will not be a community that tolerates skinny jeans. And I am here as the vanguard of authority by the powers vested in me to say that skinny people are ruining our environment because they require so much heating. Okay, so if you're here and you're cold, get some body fat on you, would you? All right, now turn to the book of Revelation chapter 4. That's, that is a prophetic word from our Lord to this church right now. Go to Revelation chapter 4 if you need a Bible. We have highly trained martial artists who are handling, uh, handing out Bibles. This also, uh, this team doubles as our security, for, so security force, so do not mess. Especially with this young lady right here. Look at her. Look at her. Crouching tiger, hidden dragon was made about her. Okay, now, we're going to the big scary book of Revelation. Again, if you are new to the Bible... This is one of the books that either fascinates you or you hate, or both. Because it is chock full of imagery that makes zero sense to us, and shockingly, it makes zero sense to us because we are not Old Testament people. We do not read the Hebrew Scriptures, we do not study them, we're not familiar with apocalyptic literature. The, the places that Revelation borrows from out of Ezekiel or Isaiah or Daniel, we just don't spend a lot of time in. And we're not familiar with emperor worship, something that was taking place uh, it, it, that was more prevalent than ever uh, before. It was taking place when Revelation was written. And so there are things and images that are borrowed, not only from the Hebrew Scriptures, from the practice of, of worshiping emperors. And we're not familiar with either of those things. So Revelation stands to us as just this really kind of crazy book. We're going to read chapters 4 and 5 this morning. It's what we read last week. We're going to read it again. We want to engage it fully in this picture that John gets of a reality that sits behind the physical reality that confronts us every day. So Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet, this was uh, out of chapter 1, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Who's that a reference to? To God, right? He's, this guy's very Jewish, and so he's not using the name of God. He's just kind of an oblique reference to God. And the good news for those of us 2,000 years later is there is a throne at the center of the universe, and we are not on it. Can we get an amen? So the throne, he says, the, the, the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne, and surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white, had crowns of gold on their heads. Mark, just in your brain, dressed in white and crowns of gold. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne were seven menorahs. Seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God, a reference to the Holy Spirit. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center around the throne were four very weird-looking creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and in back. The, the first was like a lion, second like an ox, third like a man, fourth like a flying eagle. And each of them had six wings, covered in eyes, even under their wings. Day and night, 
They never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was I am, and is I am, and will be I am. These are all just different reflections of the divine name out of Exodus 3. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him, and they worship him, and they lay their crowns before him, and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, keep that phrase in your mind, our Lord and God, to receive glory and power and honor, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw, now we're going through chapter 5 too. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll, but no one in heaven on earth or under the earth, that pretty much exalts, you know, exhausts all of us, no one was found who could open it or even look inside. I wept and I wept because no one was found. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, that's a messianic reference, and the root of David, another messianic reference, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. John has heard this, but now he looks and he sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain. This is a sacrificial image from Passover. Standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the living creatures and the elders. Now the lamb, of course, had seven horns and seven eyes, which we all fully understand. Which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, of course. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he'd taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders bow, they fell down before the lamb. So God is the one on the throne, but now this lamb is also receiving the same worship. So this Jesus is being worshipped as God. And when he had taken the scroll, verse 8, the four living creatures, 24 elders, fell down. Each of them had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people, interestingly enough. And they sang a new song. Previously, they'd been singing to the one who sat on the throne, but now they sing to this lamb. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That's my curry paraphrase. You made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will what? Reign forever and ever. Interesting. Then I looked and I heard a voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 in Greek. That is the largest number you could conceive of. So an infinite number of angels. They encircled the throne, the living creatures, and the elders, and they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then, even further out, I saw every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing the very same song we were just singing to him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. At this, the living creatures and the elders fell down, and they said, it is true, which is what amen means. Now, the reason we would spend five or six minutes reading this image and kind of marinating in this image is because we want to go to war, Mondo, fire up the telestrator, against this idea, telestrator, that worship equals singing religious songs in church. And if you grew up in church, every church service will have a part where you're either opening a hymnal or you're singing choruses or you're doing the rock band thing. 
And, and they have to be religious songs. Like you can't be you know, busting out Coldplay in the middle of this thing and call that worship. So most of us, even though we kind of intellectually, in theory, know better, we talk about worship as if it were the singing part of a church service singing religious songs. The image that we get out of the book of Revelation is so much higher and vaster and better and deeper than that. It assumes, for instance, that every single human person is a worshiper today. It doesn't matter if you're an atheist. It doesn't matter if you're an agnostic. It doesn't matter if you're a Buddhist. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian. Every single human person is a worshiper because worship isn't a religious activity. It's a human activity. As far back into ancient history as we go and discover archaeology, one of the things we always find, no matter how primitive the culture, we find objects of veneration. Because of human creatureliness, because of the limitations inherent in being human, all of us turn to something, bow down to something, find something of value and declare it to be worthy. All of us is a throne, if you will. And upon that throne sits whatever gives us security, whatever gives us power, whatever gives us control. And if you want to know what you really worship, don't listen to what you sing. Listen to how, watch how you spend your money, what excites you, your passion, your energy, your resources, what you build your life around, and that will tell you what it is that you bow down to. It is a human activity. In fact, you see this all over the place. Mondo, now this was from my Polish world tour. Right? We see people worshiping all over the place. Right? Whether it's in a mall, whether it's uh, in a sporting arena, whether it's in a rock concert. My first concert, I'm going to see Pearl Jam years and years ago, and I see everyone raising their hands and closing their eyes and singing along and smoke and light. And I was sitting there going, this kind of looks like church. (laughs) Right? And I mean, what were they doing? Were they doing something other than worshiping? See, worship is a human activity. You see it all the time, right? On the red carpet. Why did we spend three hours venerating Whitney Houston yesterday? Our culture looks for something. I mean, when the Beatles showed up, some of you are old enough to remember this, and the screaming, right? I mean, I I wanted that reaction for my Polish world tour, and I didn't get it. And then, of course, you've got, now listen, I am not the H. Don't look at me. I rebuke you in the name of something. I, mine is less pear-shaped. It's more, it's got more like up here and less up there. All right, Mondo, turn this off. So there's a tendency to think that our worship service started at 11 o'clock. Is that true? No. What have you been doing all week? You've been worshiping. Whether you knew it or not, whether you were conscious of it or not, is irrelevant. There is a sign attached to your life that says, I find value in, and it's something. So worship, when we talk about this, we think we're talking about something religious. No, 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 no. I'm telling you. You don't begin, the Bible doesn't begin this conversation by saying, hey, you all need to learn how to worship. No, no, you already know. 
We need to upgrade the objects of our devotion. That's the conversation. Because we all spend our lives bowing down the things that simply can't carry the weight we give them. We all, the, the question is not, are you worshiping? The question is, are you worshiping something worthy of your life? And if you're like me, the answer is, well, sometimes, and sometimes not. But none of us are exempt from the worship conversation. So when we talk about worship and we think, oh, yeah, yeah, it's just the singing part. No, no, no. It is tough when you're in the front row and your cell phone goes off. Right? It is a good thing you are cute, young lady, because I, else I'd be down there having our martial artists escort you out. No, there was one time, actually, I had my phone in my pocket, and I forgot to silence it, my wife called, right in the middle of when I'm teaching, and it's ringing, and I'm look, I'm getting annoyed at somebody for not turning off their phone, and it's me. <laughs> so ever since then, no, don't even worry about it. Now, the scriptures assume we're all worshiping something, but notice also, how often is this picture that we get in Revelation happening? Day and night. They never stop saying. So when did our worship service begin? Well, we, it began at 11, but do we ask God to show up at our little worship thing? Or in actuality, are we showing up to his? See, I, th I firmly believe we talk about God in entirely the wrong way. We say, God, would you show up? Like, would you be so impressed with our devotion that you make an appearance? And you have to understand, whenever you give thanks, whenever you pause for a moment in your life to appreciate something, at that moment you are hooking in to something that is happening 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for eternity past and into eternity future. There is a world that sits behind this one, the one that you can see, and in that world, as it, when Jesus talks about we want heaven, or excuse me, we, want, we pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We get a glimpse into the heavens in a passage like this. And in the heavens, God, His Spirit, and His Son are being constantly venerated and celebrated. And whenever we participate in however small or however big a way, we're actually hooking in. It's similar to the shift we have in, in thinking about what it means to be a missionary. It used to be you sent missionaries to different parts of the world to take Jesus there. But what did the missionaries discover? Who was already there? Yeah, Jesus, he doesn't need us. Would you agree? I mean, when Jesus strolls into Jerusalem and his disciples are making a ruckus, and, the, and, he, and Jesus is told, hey, quiet these dudes down. Jesus says, listen, if they stop, the rocks will start singing. I mean, our God isn't lonely. He's not depressed. He's not a cosmic egoist looking for a boost. Right? Our God sits at the center of the universe receiving praise constantly simply because of who He is. So He's not all impressed that at 11 o'clock we decide to gather and celebrate Him. Because it's not about us. What we do in these moments, though, is we hook into what's already happening. We're joining in, which has profound implications if you're the only Christian in your family, or you're the only Christian in your workplace, and you're very lonely. 
that you never worship alone, no matter if it's a private thank you between you and God, you're hooking into something that's creation-wide and happening all the time. So worship isn't just the thing you do when you sing religious songs. Go to Romans chapter 12. Paul says this really interesting thing. For if you've ever read this letter, the books of the Bible aren't books, really. They're letters. And in this case, the New Testament, they're letters to different church communities written from missionaries. So Paul, a missionary in the first century, founded a church in uh, Rome. And it was made up of non-Jewish people. I don't know if he founded it. Maybe somebody else did. Because he wanted to get there. But it was founded of people who were Jewish followers of Jesus and non-Jewish followers of Jesus, and they didn't know really how to relate to each other because the Jewish followers of Jesus were going, hey, dude, Jesus was Jewish, we're Jewish, we're we're God's chosen people, you got to be Jewish to follow Jesus. And the non-Jewish folks were going, you know, I'm not really interested in circumcision. Thank you. Appreciate the offer. So Paul writes a thick... I mean, it is like reading cement or syrup. It is. The words are complicated and the concepts are thick. For 11 chapters, he's making the case. It matters not if you're Jewish and put your trust in your obedience to the law or you're not Jewish and think that you're somehow excused because you're not. That everyone's fallen short, but God has made a way to be reconciled to God through this Jesus. 11 chapters, 11 chapters he goes through this. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, 11 chapters of God's mercy, to offer your what? Now, the word bodies doesn't just mean your physical self. It means your entire being. To offer your entire life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper. So let me get this straight. See, If you would have read this, you would have known all about sacrifices. Sacrifices were dead things. You killed something to make a sacrifice. What Paul is saying is that the work of God and the mercy displayed to you is intended to create a living sacrifice. Somebody who of their own will and volition bends their knee to this God and puts this God on display through the way that they live. And that by giving God all of you, This is worship. So what will you be doing when you drive out of here? Worshiping. What will you be doing when you eat lunch? I mean, Paul will say in another letter, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. Whether in word or in deed, do it all to the glory of God. So what will you be doing tomorrow when you drive to work? What will you be doing at work? Boy, I'm glad that there are three of us who are playing along in this moment. (laughs) Holy moly. Evidently, this is so compelling. You are stunned into silence because of its brilliance. I'm going to choose to believe that as an act of blind faith. What are you going to be doing tomorrow in school? You're worshiping. I'll answer since none of you are going to play along with me. Now, it's a separate question How in the world do you do laundry as an act of worship? How do you do carpool as an act of worship? How do you study as an act of worship? That's a very legitimate form of conversation that is not for today. I want to open you to the idea that the idea that worship is just singing songs, it's totally optional, and it's it's religious songs in a church service, that is so completely myopic. 
that we are robbed of the opportunity to see our real lives as opportunities to hook in to a reality that's taking place all the time all around us. And that by doing that, learning to worship in our real life, you're not learning to be religious, you're learning to be fully human. Because this is what human beings were built to do. That's why we can't help ourselves. There's another aspect of this picture in Revelation that takes a little more work to get at. I also want to suggest that in your real life, as you hook in to this thing that's happening all the time, I want us to begin to appreciate the subversive nature of what it means to sing and to say songs like these. I want us to begin to appreciate worship as civil disobedience. I want us to begin to see that this isn't nice, private acts of devotion that we do here. But in proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord, we are subverting every other pretender to that title. So we're going to do about 10 minutes of painful history. And at that 10 minutes, I hope some things pop out to you. I want to introduce you to a man named Domitian. Mondo, fire up the coins. Very handsome fellow. Now, a couple of pieces of background. Number one. Julius Caesar, before he was a salad, was a real person. And Julius Caesar was assassinated in the Ides of March, right? Big deal. What happened out of that was that there was this pretty epic civil war that began when his adopted son, Octavius, Octavian, through an empire-wide games, a celebration of Julius Caesar. And during those games, a comet appeared in the sky. The Romans were very superstitious. Octavian decides that that was a sign that Julius Caesar had ascended to the right hand of the god Zeus and was a god himself, Julius Caesar was. Now, if, you're the, if your dad is God, who are you? You're the son of God. So... Octavian began to call himself son of the deified one. And thus began a process of divinizing the Roman Caesars after they were dead. Okay, so what you would do is an emperor would die and then you would proclaim their birthday, let's say a celebration and honor, and you'd, you'd mint coins that had them sitting over the earth or holding seven stars or doing something crazy. What began to happen, most of the the Caesars that ruled, and remember, the Roman Empire at this point ruled pretty much the known world. From India to Greece, right? This was Rome. And the Caesars held life and death power over millions and millions and millions of people. What began to happen was that the Caesars started, and not all of them, but just a few of them began to receive worship as gods while they were still alive. So Caesar worship, the imperial imperial cult as it was called, slowly began to work its way throughout the empire. And it started on the fringes of the empire as provinces would try to curry favor, favor with the emperors. So they would build statues in honor of the current Caesar, or they would build an altar, or they would have a priesthood. And about the time of somebody named Nero, again, painful I know, Nero, his reign started well, but he just went insane. I mean, the guy was crazy. And he, the, the cruelty on display, 
through his reign was pretty dramatic. In the reign of Nero, we get, for the first time, persecution against Christians. Because up until then, Christians were just thought to be another sect of of Judaism, and Jews in that day had an exemption from the Roman Empire as an established official religion. Now, Christians come out from that protection. Nero, it was thought, set fire to burn down a third of the city of Rome. He blames that on Christians. Persecution breaks out. Fast forward 30 years, and we meet a man named Domitian, who was called the second Nero. Domitian, during his reign, began something called a reign of terror that lasted the last three years of his reign, before he was assassinated. Now, this is where you need to start paying attention if I've lost you. Now, a lot of this is based on just fragments of information. But there's some indication that Domitian began calling himself Lord and God. Or at least not refusing the title when other people gave it to him. One ancient writer says he made his wife call him that. Now, I've tried that at home, and that was a kind of an epic fail. As they say, the young kids say these days. Domitian began, in those, particularly the last part of his reign, to insist upon his own veneration. We have a letter, in fact, that, that, that says, Our Lord and God commands you. And then it fills in the command. Domitian created a, a games uh, called the Domitian Games. Uh, where, and they were, they were competing with Greece's Olympics. And, and one historian says this about Domitian's games. Mondo, fire it up. When Domitian appeared in the circus and took his seat beneath the sacred canopy in order to conduct these games, he was enthroned, a golden wreath on his head. The spectators had to appear clad in, interestingly enough, Domitian loved to hear the cry of hail to the Lord. Other forms of acclamation were the following. Hail, victory, Lord of the earth, invincible power, glory, honor, peace, security, holy, blessed, great, unequaled, thou alone, worthy art thou, worthy is he to inherit the kingdom. Come, come, do not delay, come again. Now, doesn't that sound a little bit like something we just read? In fact, this is kind of an amalgamation of some stuff. But this was a hymn. They would sing, Greater you, our Lord and God. Worthy are you to receive honor and power and glory. Worthy are you, Lord of the earth, to inherit the kingdom. Lord of Lord. Now, it should be Lord's. I don't know what happened. Highest of the high. Lord of earth. God of all things. Lord God and Savior for eternity. Lord forever. Lord from eternity to eternity. Lord in all ages. What began to happen is if you did not begin to acknowledge Domitian in these ways, you were persecuted as an atheist, someone who did not believe in the traditional Roman gods. And Domitian began to enforce worship in some interesting ways. For instance, there was something in Ephesus called an agora. Agora was the marketplace where you would buy and sell goods. There's some speculation that in order to buy and sell, you would have to make an offering of incense to Caesar. And that you would receive either a permit, which is something Domitian speaks of, or a mark on your hand or your forehead. 
in order to buy and sell. In fact, Domitian's contemporaries referred to him as the beast. So, if you're in the first century and you read about the mark of the beast, I mean, perhaps you weren't thinking of Saddam Hussein and credit card numbers. Perhaps you were thinking of the pressure that the Roman government was placing on people to acknowledge its sovereignty. In fact, once a year, you would have to appear before the magistrates to receive a certificate. Now, this is, what, this is an example of one of the certificates would say. You would have to appear before the magistrates of Rome and offer a sacrifice to Caesar. And then you would get a certificate good for one year that allowed you to conduct business in the empire. To those who've been appointed to preside over the sacrifices from this person, from the village of that, together with his children, them, who reside in the village of that village, now notice the language. We have always sacrificed to the gods and now in your presence, according to the regulations, we've sacrificed and offered libations, which is pouring out a drink offering. We have tasted the sacred things. These would be, this would be meat that was sacrificed in honor of the emperor that then would be sold. And we have asked you to give us a certification that we have done so. The certificate was signed, we the representatives of the emperor, Cernos and Hermas, have seen you sacrificing. Now, do you get just a slight picture of what it would have been like as, Christ, as Christians were wrestling? Well, do we burn the incense? I mean, we, we can't feed our families. There were, there were processions once a year on the emperor's birthday that would come through Ephesus, one of the cities this letter is written to where everybody would have to bow down and acknowledge Caesar's lordship. Do you just skip town during those? Are, are you the only person that refuses to bow low? Or do you bow low for the sake of your family? These were some of the issues they would be wrestling with. And then you get a letter from your pastor who's exiled for speaking out against this emperor. And he says, hey, just so you know, there's a throne at the center of the universe. Domitian isn't on it. And what they're saying... And what you will say too is you are worthy, our Lord and God. So that's the Domitian title. Now apply to God. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive power and honor and glory. I mean, over and over, you are worthy, you are worthy. You've made them a kingdom of priests. You will reign over the earth. All of this. Rome had a word for this letter. You know what it was? Treason. It wasn't that the earliest Christians worshipped Jesus. Because Rome was incredibly tolerant of you worshipping any gods you wanted to. You could worship your mother's big toe if you wanted to. But it was if your worship excluded the worship of the other gods, that's when you got into trouble. So it wasn't that the Christians worshipped Jesus. It was that they worshipped Jesus alone. Brothers and sisters, worship back then was civil disobedience. To sit in a house and declare that Jesus was Lord meant, I know, it's painful background. I know, I'm so sorry. Yes, I hear this from my wife often. <laughs> to say that Caesar, or excuse me, that Jesus was Lord meant that Caesar was not. 
And you could be put to death for that. You have to understand, these aren't just cute little words we're singing. If they're true, they undermine every other claimant to the throne of your life, including you. If they're true, this is not some private act of devotion that we do just in the stillness of our hearts. This is public and it's political. Because what you're saying is that your gender, that your economic status, your identification as Republican or Democrat, your citizenship in the United States, all of that is secondary to being identified with this Jesus. End of story. Either he is Lord or he is not. And the image of the first church's worship is that this was the kind of thing that could get you killed. Well timed, sir. Well timed. Holding it for just that moment. We're building, we're building, we're building. <laughs> oh my goodness. It used to be that the church community was way too political, way too unlovingly bold, way too invested in the political process, way too public in their especially judgmental kind of critiques of culture. I mean, anytime the church becomes known for their political affiliations and not for the love of Jesus, they're not operating in Jesus. Can we agree? But maybe we've overcompensated to the place where now we just want to be known as nice people. And hallelujah for nice people, but there are lots of nice people. We're just a bit more tentative now to speak. A guy like Tebow, you know, say in the name of Jesus, just kind of, just, I don't know, man. I mean, it just, really, do you have to be that up front? I mean, we've just grown maybe a bit too timid now. Maybe Caesar isn't Domitian. Maybe it's public opinion. We don't want to be mocked. We don't want to be ridiculed. We don't want to take an unpopular stance and have people mock us. Right? Maybe there needs to be a bit more loving and gracious defiance in us against anything, including me, that wants to sit on the throne of my life. Perhaps, brothers and sisters, We've lost a bit of the prophetic edge that these words we say, sing, and participate in really represent. Perhaps we've lost a bit of the subversive nature of what it means to be a follower of this Jesus. To say that how I look isn't the most important thing. That's not Caesar. How much money I have isn't Caesar. Whether or not I'm right isn't Caesar. Whether or not I'm universally adored isn't Caesar. I mean, I don't know what it is for you. We all got something that beckons our compromise to it. And so worship, in its very core, becomes the act of subverting whatever that is. When we gather publicly, we're declaring money isn't Lord. Fashion Island isn't Lord. 24-hour fitness isn't Lord. Our arbitrary cultural definitions of beauty are not Lord. Success isn't Lord. 
Perfect body isn't Lord. Health isn't Lord. See, now, instead of just being this nice, cute little thing that church people do, it becomes practice for the rest of your week. Because the re- it's easy to worship here, isn't it? But when you're sitting in cubicle land and somebody's taking shots at you, or you're sitting in class and the temptation is a very, very real to take shortcuts, where do you bow at that point? I mean, worship here, easy. But could this be reframed as practice for what we do the rest of the week? Because what you're going to do when you leave here is worship, and what you're going to do tomorrow is worship, and the day after is worship, the whole thing, worship. And brothers and sisters, there was a group in the first century called the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans, it's thought, we don't know a lot about them, they seem to be mentioned a couple of different places early in the book of Revelation. But there's some speculation that these were Christians who advocated compromise. Who who said things like, hey, it's okay to eat some of the meat that was sacrificed to idols. Because, I mean, we know those gods aren't real. It's okay to kind of burn a little incense to Caesar. I mean, we know it's not legit. And what's fascinating is the Lord Jesus speaks to this church in Ephesus. And he says to the church, you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so I just wonder what compromise looks like for you and me. I mean, it's not as obvious. There aren't parades of statues of President Obama There aren't parades of our prime ministers or our kings and queens. I mean, there's none of that. But the temptation to worship other things is just as real. So this morning we thought we'd practice a bit more to war against and to subvert every other pretender who claims to be worthy of our devotion. So would you stand with me? Would you close your eyes for just a moment? We recognize, brothers and sisters, we are people of unclean lips and we are people of unclean lives and we are people of unclean allegiances. We stand before our God not in virtue of our own goodness or right to be here. We stand before our God because in His grace, He's allowed us to be reconciled with God's self through this Jesus. And so we come as people who are purified, and yet we live in the middle of the worship of everything else. And our own hearts are just tempted over and over again to bow down to other things. And so we gather, not to sing religious songs, but we gather to refurnish our imaginations, to reorient our real lives, to taste again the freedom that comes from bowing down to the only one worthy of our affections. We come to worship. We come as worshipers, not learning to do something new, but learning to be reminded 
but who's really worthy? 